free market. They made a decision. It makes no. That's the, that's the dumb market. Okay, that's the dumb market. I'm a big free trader, but it has to be fair. So what's happened is we have lost over a period of years, short years, seventy thousand factories in this country. Chris, seventy thousand. I always say to people, I think it's a type. Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 2919 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Come to you live on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. And we can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today as we can continue to uh, provide you enlightenment through the, uh, the, the, uh, the thoughts and the expressions of cats who normally express themselves through their instruments. And uh, again, I get a chance to reach back into time and pull them into the future with a cat who has been um, really all around this world uh, in both the studio scene and at the top of the pop charts, uh, working with luminary characters, worldwide musicians and artists. Uh, he developed his own original sound on the bandstand at a time when you could play probably six, seven nights a week and actually get paid for it and also be in the studio and get paid for that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a different time in the music business. It's no longer an industry, but, uh, he continues to persevere. When I called him last week, he uh, said that, uh, he was unable to, uh, do the interview at that time because he was going to be in the, uh, in the uh, musician's pit. It would be kind of hard to, uh, to talk while there was a upcoming gig with a bunch of musicians around. So, Glad I got him in his home live from Stamford, Connecticut. David Spinoza, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, how you doing? Thanks, Jake. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Good, good. Hey, um, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the idea. A while back, I talked to uh, uh, John Abercrombie, and and he, you know, he basically was very clear. He said, you know, if if you don't have, as a guitar player, if you don't have rhythm, if you can't keep rhythm, then you're not going to get a gig. And he got his sort of, a, he started to play with, um, he got a chance to gig with Johnny Hammond Smith. And uh, that was an experience in and of itself. And ultimately, when George Benson couldn't make the record date, Abercrombie got, a, got the call to be on, that was his first record he was on. But the point is that on the bandstand with Johnny Hammond Smith, he learned to develop rhythm. And I was just hoping you could talk about a gig you had where you really developed your rhythm chops early on. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question because I, I think a lot of a lot of uh, music, not just guitarists, just musicians in general, don't pay a lot of attention to to rhythm and meaning. Also, not just rhythmic figures, but the actual time, you know, the space exactly each thing. And um, I, I think this part of that is is a natural thing. I think you're either you're sort of born with rhythm or or not. I really believe you can develop it. You can work on it. Like people practice with uh, metronomes and stuff like that, which could just help you see, you know, where you might have tendency to rush or tendency to drag, and all that kind of stuff really helps. But but for the most part, I think rhythm is kind of an innate thing. You know, you either you sort of have it or you don't. You can you can you can better it, but I think it's better to have it. I think it was something I always had. As a kid, my mother used to uh, say I'd, I'd be tapping on the table all the time. When I was three years old, I was always listening to the radio and tapping along with it. <laughs> I was interested in dancing and stuff like that. I was actually took dancing lessons when I was really uh, young. And so rhythm was something that was just something, it just spoke to me, you know. Uh, 
and I got to play with some great drummers, which 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 really helped. You know, growing growing up, and I listened to a lot of stuff that where the rhythm was really kind of uh, you know exacting, and I and I really liked that. Which you know people then call the groove or whatever. You know, but you can call it whatever you want. But even in a, even say in a classical orchestra. Uh, you still have to have a good time. If you're playing in a classical orchestra, you have to play the rhythm the way it's written and, and make it feel good. So that's something uh, It goes across all idioms of music, you know. Um, could you specifically talk about, I mean, it's, in, you know, like Demiola was in his high school class was was playing 4-4 four, four on the floor and then he was playing polyrhythms on his desk with his fingers. But, I mean, can you talk about uh, the first gig that you had where you really it was outside of your bedroom not listening to records where you were on the bandstand and uh and you really maybe because of the drummer you whoever it was and just i mean i'm envisioning some gig in at like slugs or somewhere like that where you you know you well most of me was i had bands when i was i had bands when i was 13 or 14 and i came up in uh, westchester county you know which was in uh new york state i, I grew up in mamaronic and i came up two of the drummers i played with a lot as a kid, or, or Rick Morata. Oh my um, God, I love and Andy that. Newm- and, and Andy Newmark. They were like, you know, a couple, uh, of, a couple of the drummers that were in my, awesome. my band. And, and Rick had some ridiculous innate, speaking of innate natural time, uh, Rick didn't start playing drums until he was about 19 years old. He was a late <laughs> bloomer. But he was in my bands when we were, you know, younger and stuff and you know he sort of went on to be who he who he became but like for instance like that he he didn't have a lot of chops but his sense of time and feel result was just innate and once he picked up drumsticks it showed up in the drums you know so yeah i played with him i played with andy there was a uh some and, and some drummers that, are, that didn't necessarily be you know make make it in the music industry as far as you know like uh going out to play records and stuff a guy named tommy georgie and we, i just played and for some reason in westchester county at the time there was a lot of people playing mostly like r&b and stuff you know which and that stuff was all pretty much you know exact exact timing stuff and it was stuff we were all drawn to uh so yeah i always had horn bands you know and we played like that so that that's kind of where i started to uh develop it you know yeah right on um so um, what kind of, uh, I think that was the point, is that you, it said you were born in uh, Port Chester, is that right? I was born in Port Chester, New York, yes. So did you wind up, uh, you know, catching the the groups that would, you know, the New Riders of the Purple Sage or, or the Grateful Dead when they came through there at that time? You no, know, I didn't, you know, for, for a professional musician, I have to admit, I have seen very little uh, shows live. So I, I didn't go to that many concerts. Um, I was always playing myself. I was gigging out when I was a kid. I really didn't. I know the Capitol Theater in Portchester, sure. which is now, from what I hear, is back, uh, you know, again, full swing. But I didn't see a lot back then. I saw Sly and the Family Stone once. That's probably the biggest biggest concert I ever went to, you know, Madison Square Garden. That was uh, interesting. But there were some local bands I used to listen to. There was a guitar player named Link Chamberlain who I listened to a lot. He was in a local band called The Orchids, and they were doing a lot of stuff that I had never heard before, and I was very impressionable. I was 13, 14 years old when I'd go hear them. And, uh, you know, he wound up doing a lot of stuff. He, he unfortunately died young of leukemia. He never really, you know, flourished into probably what he could have been, you know, uh, become. But he played with a lot of people, including then Dave Liebman did some stint with him, and he decided to play mostly jazz and not any R&B anymore. <clears throat> and so... I, I would listen to him as a kid. He told me to go listen to West Montgomery records and things like that. So, you know. <laughs> wait, wait, I, hold on. Liebman, Liebman was, this cat's name was Link what? Link Chamberlain. Link yeah, Chamberlain. He, this is fantastic. Yeah, you, may, you probably don't know him because, uh, yeah, like I said, unfortunately, he died young of leukemia. 
he was like only 46 years old or something like that, but he was way ahead of his time on the instrument. And a lot of people that grew up around the Westchester area would go see him. He was clearly the best guitarist in that, you know, in that, uh, in that hood, you know, in Connecticut, Westchester. So we'd all go hear him, and he had a very interesting style and a way of looking at music that people really enjoyed. So I used to listen to him a lot as a kid, and then he would say, oh, go listen to this record or go listen to that, that kind of thing. You know, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, where you were. I've, I've, you know, I've chronicled, I've just tried to go after musicians and focus on it all being music and um mm-hmm. so uh, you know it's it's gone all over the world really i've tried to get cats from uh east india uh you know uh europe uh, the, the british invasion but um you know i just was i was hoping you could talk a little bit so a couple of the merry pranksters who who never went they were not professional musicians but they mm-hmm. were very much into music and acting and colors and one of the original pranksters, uh, George Walker, who was a drummer, he, he said he went to the uh, uh, jazz workshop in, in San Francisco. And, and this is 61, 62. This is, this is mm-hmm. post-Bebop in some way. You know, Bebop was, was – and he saw Dizzy play with Ross on Roland Kirk. Uh-huh. And he said that the music was defi- – it was psychedelic jazz. It was, right, it was right. like – can you – what was going on in, in that early – you talk to someone like David Grisman, uh, in terms of rock and roll, Elvis uh, went to the army, Little Richard found God. It was a vapid time in rock and roll to a degree. A lot of the jug bands came out of it. But that early 60s period in jazz, can you talk specifically about uh, how you would describe that music? Because George is a brilliant cat, and he said right. it, it was not bebop, and it was, it was psychedelic jazz. And I just wanted well, you to talk about that. Yeah, interesting. I, I, you know, I had rock bands at the time, and I think what was going on, I think, I mean, this is just my interpretation. I'm not totally sure. I'm not a historian. Of course. Uh, but I remember when my band started to, like, get yeah, with the guitars got louder in the Jimi Hendrix period of that whole thing where people started to experiment with stuff outside of their own world. I think the jazz world was starting to... You know, the people that were hardcore jazz guys were starting to listen to rock, go, hey, maybe there's something here. And I think some of the rock guys were listening to jazz going, hey, there's something here. You know, because back then the the camps were different. You know, there was a rock camp, there was a jazz camp, a classical camp, you know, whatever. Uh, And I just think people started to, everybody started to listen to each other a little more, go, you know, maybe there is something to this Hendrix kind of thing. Or maybe there is something to... uh, you know, Miles Davis, maybe guys that would never have listened to Miles because they were rock guys. And I think that, and then, of course, it turned into fusion, but I think that's what happened. I think people softened on their on their idea of what idiom of music, you know, was better than the other or something. You know, people tend to, to say, this is my music or that's, you know, but I think that's what happened. I think people started to become more open. Maybe the, maybe it was the pot, people were smoking pot, the drug, I don't know what it well, was. Well, that's what I was going to get at, is uh, explain, I don't know. No, I mean, I mean, because I, 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 it was beyond the marijuana, I think it might have had something to do with psychedelics, I mean, I really... Psychedel- be- perhaps, I mean, remember, they did call it psychedelic music, so why did they call it that? Well, people, people were experimenting with right. all sorts of things, including <laughs> musical stuff, you know, I mean, at, at one time, I remember when I first came in the scene, like the, the guys that were jazz players, for instance, that could do the, what I call the ting ticka ting thing, you know, all the swing stuff, they really couldn't play straight eighth rock feel with any real commitment. And a lot of the straight eighth guys that, you know, played rock and roll couldn't really swing. I mean, like you look at the musicians today now, they're so much more well-rounded. They can do everything. You know, they can play, they can play and make it sound like they're in the Rolling Stones band, or they can play and make it sound like they're in Miles group from, you know, back in the day. So 
um, I think people, it's just educated people to the fact that I think music is music, you know? And, and, uh, I, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what caused it. It's yeah. hard to go back and figure it out, but I think it's great because people are honoring each other's different bags of music and not, and not saying, well, my, my, you know, the music that I love is better than the music that you love. You know, it's just, it's just music, you know? I mean, this. I mean, I'm 38, but when I right. when I when I look at this, I mean, I am so attached to your generation. I mean, in some ways, I just feel like it's a total brother and sisterhood. And um, I also don't think, I mean, a lot of you guys, you might have been a little bit young, but I mean, you know, a lot of the cats. I mean, Jimmy Cobb, or you know, yeah, yeah. who's ever, you know, the beboppers that are still left, Johnny Mandel, you yeah. know, Terry Gibbs. I, you know, I'm doing a, a doc sure. film, film doc on on Stan Getz and I've interviewed these guys and, and you know, wow. a lot of them, they said that like, uh, bebop was a term that like a journalist like myself gave the music like Dizzy and bird didn't even call it. They, they, they didn't even like that, that term. It was just new. Yeah, I, I modern, could understand. You know? Yes, I could understand that. I, and I happen to uh, agree with them. I mean, I never like to call music. I, I really don't like it when someone puts me on the spot and says, well, what's, you know, what's the hippest music or what's the best music or yeah. And I do think all those terms, come from you know writers i don't think they come from musicians most musicians don't i mean i think of myself as a musician i've never called myself a jazz musician or a classical musician or or a rock musician i've, I've never said that i've i've read it that people said he's a jazz rock guy or, or he's a that you know i've seen that a lot but i've i just never called myself i just called myself a musician <laughs> and i guess what i'm trying to get at is this idea like you said before everything was kind of stratified you know it was jazz and this player yeah. was rock and i'm it's really interesting to hear that because i I feel like that's really where we're because of the branding nature and the marketing nature of our of the business construct that we live in. It's a branding. It's a yes. And so and so it's yeah. it's harder to just um, for younger cats to just be able to play music and express themselves because if they don't find them if they can't brand themselves then they're they're not going to be able to make it a, as a musician quote unquote. You can't even do authentic music that's true to yourself. And yeah, it is. It, that's hard to. I mean, that's always been hard to do. I mean, because and also how much of it, you know. I think what's happened too with the record, you know, like now that everybody has a recording studio in their house, unfortunately, you have to weed through more stuff, you know, to find good stuff anyway. And and, and I understand it sort of leveled the playing field in a certain way, but you know, good is still good and bad is bad, and <laughs> it doesn't matter where you record it or how you record it. And it used to be back in the day that the only things that got recorded were things that were worthy of being recorded. Because, you know, some people who were tried and true record execs, you know, signed these people because they were heads and heels bit better than everybody else. Now you just have everybody making their own records, and, you know, it's like it's, there's really no, no discrimination between what's, what deserves to be recorded and what doesn't. So everybody records now. So that's also changed. You know, that's been... Well, it's also, but I want to be clear, I mean, when David Spinoza, when he was 13, 14 years old and on the bandstand, I mean, you were walking into a... <laughs> could have been a pharmacy or a record shop, but I mean, it was A to Z alphabetically, but there was no, it was not, there were no labels. Like it wasn't like the jazz section and the R and B soul. And, that's right. That's right. I, I mean, you could that's go right. through and find Gary Bartz and you could find Beethoven. I mean, it, yeah, it, good point. That's a good point. I it, forgot that. You're right. Yeah. It, I mean, all I'm saying is that, uh, there are the Duke Ellington model, <laughs> um, of, you know, it's all music. It's either good yeah. or bad, you know, I mean, or in right. your opinion, whatever. Um, but just like you know, I mean, to me, it's it's amazing because you use a word like jazz, and I just interviewed Bones Malone over the weekend, and and yeah. that cat, you know, he's just like my definition of jazz is really wide. It, 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 anything, yeah. 
any music that has improvisation in it, and it could be Muscle Shoals, Memphis Horns, it could be yeah. Levon Helm, it could be, uh, you know, right. it could be soundistical, right. but it's like, you know, that, so, but nowadays you talk to people that aren't music fans, but they hear, um, you know, this kind of music and they don't, they say jazz, what is jazz? They don't know what jazz is. They, I don't even know what people, that, what that word means anymore, you know, because it, I, I, this is really... Yeah, I'm not certain either, because I agree with it. Improvisation is improvisation. I mean, you know, when you make something up on the spot, you know, based on the harmonic structure of a song or whatever, you're improvising. So I guess you could call that jazz. I mean, all these words, you know, words don't really define anything. You know, people have said that it's really hard. I mean, if we could all agree on words, then lawyers wouldn't be arguing with each other. All That's the time. right. I mean, you know. You know, if I everything mean, meant something exactly, and you know, and you could actually express the truth perfectly and everybody gets it the same, then you know what? That would be, it would make life easy. But unfortunately, it's not like that. So we have all these code words like jazz or, you know, what's hip hop, for instance? What the hell is hip hop? Right. What is it? What is it really? It's just a term. What does it mean? Is it a feel? Is it, you know, what's jazz? What's, uh, you know, country? People say, oh, that's a uh, southern country rock. What is that? <laughs> well, I mean, some of this stuff is, I mean, listen, acid jazz, Don, yeah, pa- acid, yeah. Don Patterson, you know, or, you know, these organ cats, Grant Green, Charles Kennard. There's yeah. no, I mean, not put the smack aside. I mean, there right. might, there might have been a fusion of psychedelics with people playing different kinds of modal jazz i mean that might have been accurate but this is this is so important spinoza because you know you come from this era of burning music i don't care if it was whatever it was it was just burning it was it was made like as art blakey said so eloquently you know my job is when those people come into the club or bar to see me is to wash away the dust of everyday life for these people now music today Okay, and not not too being too stereotypical, but it yeah. it's clearly made for pacification. People hear smooth jazz and they think that's jazz. They hear Kenny yeah. G. Okay, so how where what? How do you can you talk about the first time? I mean, there were cats that used to go to the El Matador in San Francisco. Yeah. You know, guitar players who would go to see Wes Montgomery and. He'd, sure. have, he'd have a cigarette coming out of his mouth and just be firing machine gun bullets of, of solos at people. And, yes. and the guy was a welder and he had like eight kids. And it was, can yeah. you, can you talk about early on, you know, like the idea of what it means in your mind to, to burn, to, to, ha- to create burning music? Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, that it's, I don't know. It's hard to hard to expect how to create burning music. I mean, that's once again that's a term. I don't know what that means. I know what it feels like when you got to solo and you got to play extended solos through stuff, and people actually had the patience to listen and see what it what developed. That's uh, I'm, I'm talking about going into a setting where, uh, you know, you get into a, an improvisational jam and get lost in it, and nobody and everybody's listening and everybody's willing to allow other people to express themselves. Yeah, well, I think there was just more patience back then. Like, you, you know, that's what it was. I mean, now people are just impatient. I mean, I think music has changed. You know, what, the function of music in society has changed. That's right. You know, from what it was. It, it no longer is like, oh, music something to focus on. I mean, I remember the, when people started talking, when smooth jazz came out, and people started saying to me, oh, this is great music to talk over. And I thought, wow. 
when I was coming up, we didn't talk over music. We were pinned to the, you know, if you put an album on, you listen to it from beginning to end. You didn't just listen to two seconds or decide, I'm going to cook, so I'm going to put on Kenny G and, and, and cook in the <laughs> right, kitchen. Right, 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 right. Talk to my wife. Right, that, right. You know, it never, it never had, and that's not to put down Kenny G, by the way. I mean, he no, he's stuff. selling millions of albums, but it's yeah, just... Yeah, it's, that's not, it's yeah, it's not a put down of Kenny G, but I'm just saying the, funct- the function of, of, list- of music being the focus itself I think just has changed in society. I don't know why it did. I mean, I, boy, if I could write that book, uh, it'd be a million seller. I don't know, but it just has. People's patience, people's attention span is very different now. You know what I mean? And uh, I remember going to see, well, you mentioned Wes. I went to see Wes Montgomery. I was 14 years old, uh, and I went to see him at the Village Vanguard. I saw him with you know, the Montgomery brothers, him oh. and, and, and Buddy. And I saw that, and I had never seen anything like that in my life. I just sat there with my mouth open. And took a guitar, probably one of the biggest guitar lessons of my life was seeing that band and seeing them play, and what a great guy he was. I introduced myself to him backstage. Hey, kid, you play the guitar? I said, yeah, you know, and blah, blah, blah. It was really terrific. And I sat there and watched both sets, I think, you know, and I was like, that's the one and only time I ever saw Wes live. I certainly have every recording he's ever made. Um, And I said, wow, but why it changed? I mean, I don't don't know. I, I would... You know, I wish I had a crystal ball. I could tell you. Well, no, I, I think know. also, I mean, Ron Carter said it that you know, uh, mothers against drunk driving, uh, and the idea that everybody has these, uh, you know, home stereo systems were much more. Uh, you know, people are not going to go out as much. I mean, before there was not a lot of air conditioning. There were clubs everywhere. People were. Oh, yeah. People went, and you had these dawn gigs. I'm sure you had them. I mean, people had them in the Fillmore District. You know, these six, oh, sure. two sure. to six jams. I mean, I, you know, to me, it's like there's. There are re- patience is key. I just also think that you know when you start getting down to it as well, and, and we can get into it real quick. But you know, yeah. listen, you know James Taylor, Walking Man. You're looking at this. These there was probably very little overdubbing. These cats were hitting it all live in the studio. Now today it's like, hey Spinoza, can you email me a a, a, a guitar solo and we can overdub it on the CD? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah I get that. I mean that's yeah. that's sure. formulaic and that's also sterile. So the sound is also. Um, but I want to read you a quote from somebody. Um, you know, do you know who Leland Sklar is? I do very well, bass player. Bass player. So this is yeah. what he said. Terrific guy, terrific player. I, I mean, dude, I've inter- five 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 interviews with with Sklar so far. He said, oh, he's great. I, I love, love him. him, but he, this is one of the quotes from our interviews. He said, James Taylor is one of the most underrated guitarists around. When he plays guitar, he's got this moving thumb that is always playing bass. He has a rhythmic quality to his playing and chordal qualities. He's yep. pretty much a one-man band on guitar. Yep. Everything is defined in his playing. We as drummers and bassists, whoever is playing with him, really has to figure out how to bob and weave through all this to come up with the part that justifies being there because he's already playing the part I normally would be playing. It's yeah, he's a complete package. Can package. you talk about that style that he has? Because I think a lot of people, they say, well, I mean, they live on his vocals, they live on his sound, they live on his voice. Right. But I don't think well, a lot of people realize he was a, that sophisticated a guitar player. Yeah, he's a sophisticated musician. And, I mean, let's not forget, which a lot of people also forget, especially in the improvisational world, that he is a master songwriter. I mean, first of all, you know, you have to have something to play. And he writes great songs, and he's a great interpreter of songs, of other people's songs. So, you know, I got to work with him during Walking Man and stuff, uh, and in a few other occasions. But, no, he's a one-man band. I remember when we were doing Walking Man together, I had a meeting, and he wanted to play me the songs, and I went to him. It was just him and I. In fact, he was, uh, it was at Carly Simon's apartment at the time. They were just dating you know, back in the day, and uh, he played me most of the songs from Walkman. Said, "You know, what do you hear on this?" I'm like, "Jesus, just 
just get me a cassette machine. I'll pl- I'll press record, and you got a record. I mean, <laughs> he's. I mean, his accompaniments are like little, like they're little pieces. They're like little guitar pieces into themselves. They're beautiful. So. Yeah, I would have to agree with Leland. I mean, James is a. Is, I think he's like an American treasure. How, how, can you talk big. to the audience about? You know, you're you're credited, rightfully so, as the music producer on on Walking Man. So I mean, yes. I mean, to me, this is like, uh, you know, you got Murata, you got you got some of the Beatles, you got Barry Rogers, Howard Johnson. I mean, Brecker Brothers. Can you talk about how that, that album, I think it would be very instructional to talk about how you made, how that album all was, was recorded. Yeah, it was recorded live in the studio and at the Hit Factory, uh, the studio called the Hit Factory. Jerry Ragavoy used to own it. Absolutely. Also, songwriter. Yeah, but um, what happened was James was, uh, at, the time I was, at the time I was working with Carly Simon. She introduced me to James Taylor. I was, I was her musical director for about three years. And... Uh, and, and, you know, we were just going on gigging, and, and in fact, that was a great band. It was the band I have with, that, with Maneri, Lamage, and Steve Gadd was in it, Tony Levin was doing Michael, Warren Bernhardt, and we were backing, we were backing Carly, but I had just done my record for A&M Records, so I would sort of, you know, we would open up for her, and then she would come out and do her set, and she was starting to date James, and James wanted to make another record, and there was one song, actually one of the songs on the record called... Um, let it fall down. I think it's called. It's been a while since it yeah, fall down, and it was about it was about actually Nixon resigning. You know, let Nixon. it all fall down. Yeah, let it all fall down. It was his song, uh, you know, in terms of Nixon leaving the White House, you know, being impeached or whatever, he resigning and all that stuff. And that was a song. Apparently, James had tried to record it a few times. Didn't like the way it came out. He was liking my work with Carly, and he said to me, you know, I'm, there's a song. If you can make it sound good in the studio, you can produce my next record. I was like, what? Really? It was, it was just. I was like, oh, that would be unbelievable. I mean, he was already a star. It wasn't like I was taking somebody, you know, trying to make him have a record, make him, you know, become big. He was already big. And uh, I said, sure, I would love to work with you. And so we went in the studio and we did that live. You know, I called the band in and we did it. He liked the way it came out. And he said, well, let me play the other tunes. You're going to produce my next record. Jeez. And I said, that'd be great, because he also knew I wrote for horns and strings and stuff like that, and I'm an orchestrator and stuff, too. So he wanted to do something different. He didn't want it to be, you know, like a, kind of his folk pop thing. He didn't want it to be slightly different, and he wanted horns and strings on it and different stuff. And he, and he said, you can do that, right? I said, sure. So I really just sat there and listened, like what Leland was saying, to a lot of his bass lines and his chordal structures. It was like, how do you do this, put other stuff on it, and not get in the way? of the guitar so uh, and his voice because that still had to be the main focus because that's that's who he is you know so it was kind of like putting together a musical puzzle for him you know and and a setting that would sound good and and yet not take away from who james because james really is one of those he's a troubadour he's one of those guys he could sit in your living room with his guitar and sing to you for two hours and you would be very entertained yeah (laughs) i mean it was like uh a different completely different sound and style but i was i did my i just interviewed uh Keltner, Jim Keltner last week, and he was talking mm-hmm. about uh, the first time that he he saw uh, the band uh, at, at Sammy Davis Jr.'s uh, house in California, and he saw Levon, yeah. and he said, uh, uh, he goes, I mean, he, he riffed so hard on Levon's, uh, you know, totally authentic drumming style, but then he said, he goes, the singing, they were all great singers, but you could literally, you did not want it to stop, ever. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just, yep. it was great. And, and so, would you consider that, like, a demarcation point in your career or, or had you already done had you already been doing some pretty luminary stuff prior to the James Taylor stuff 
Yeah, I was doing. I mean, I was playing on a lot of records. I mean, I, I you know, I became a studio musician before I even knew what what a studio musician was. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I didn't aspire to be a studio musician. I I just aspired to play the guitar. You know, right. well, and 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 I was always, you know, always had horn bands. I was always writing charts for the horns. I always was, I was always interested in how music worked technically too, not just as a guitarist. You know, just the, what makes a trumpet sound like that? How do you write for trumpet? How do you write for tenor sax? You know, what's the transposition? I was interested. I call it the musical forensics. You know, the forensics. Absolutely. How it how it works on the inside. You know, what's the range of a French horn? Why is it written in a different key? All that stuff. So I was always interested in that, and so. I was just, you know, uh, just doing that. I wasn't thinking about being a studio guy, and I wasn't even thinking about being a jazz guitarist. Like I said, people said, "Oh, you're a jazz guy." Oh, you're right. I said, "I don't know. I'm just." Pra- I was studying classical guitar at the time too. I, you know, I was, I was doing that. I was uh, studying orchestration. Um, most of my bands were rhythm and blues bands. That was just the music I grew up playing. Um, but uh, no, and then you know, I got called to do a McCartney session. I, was, I played with John Lennon. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I the first hit record I played on was Bye Bye Miss American Pie. You know, wow. So it was like I was already, you know, I was just 18 years old or something. I was just I was working a lot and I was getting calls. And next thing I knew, you know, there was this answering service in New York City. They said if you're, you know, if you really want to get work, you got to join Radio Registry, and that was the place you could call to to get you know, the, the the studio guys, and I didn't even know it existed. They called me because I guess people were looking for me on registry, and registry said, you better join our service because you're missing a lot of work. They keep calling here, and you're not with us. And that's how I found out about this musician answering service. You know, and the next thing I knew, I was a studio musician. I didn't know. I didn't even know what a studio musician was. Just reading off, uh, this was yep. just a day in the life of David Spinoza in 1972. Uh all the King's Horses, Grover Washington Jr., Black Heat, Buddy Rich, Bobby Humphrey, Gil Scott Heron, Robin Kenyatta, Tim Weisberg, Paul Williams, LaBelle, uh, Paul Simon, Roberta Flack, Donnie Hathaway. I mean, you guys were masters of all trades. That's the thing that's very interesting because my generation, younger generations, mm-hmm. where you were interested in the forensics of it, uh, I mean, do you, was there a time when you, where you felt like you just crossed the threshold where you were in a fearless state of mind where you didn't really, it didn't phase you at all because now cats, you get into a situation. If it's not four, four time, people are very caught up in where the one is They're uh, they're, they, they need to hear themselves. They're more insecure. And yeah. I'm just curious if there was a time when you, I mean, to go into a, a soul jazz session or, you know, a pop rock session or, you know, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a spoken word. You know, I mean, to me, it's yeah. like this, or, or just complex jazz with like Mike Maynary, White Elephant. I mean, it was. Was there a point that you could point that you could that you could talk about where you really turned a corner as far as your your confidence was concerned? Well, I would say after about the first four or five years of playing sessions, I was fairly confident. But there was always one little fear for me personally, and it's probably different with everybody, was that, you know, as you started playing dates, they would like, you know, and there were not a lot of rehearsals. You have to come in and sight read stuff. And my reading wasn't as good as my ears, so I was always studying to to stay ahead of it. I kept worrying about that one session where somebody was going to come in and put a guitar part in front of me that I couldn't play and have to say, sorry, I can't do this, and, you know, have to you know remove myself from the session that fear was always there and 
not to make excuses, but reading on a guitar can be kind of iffy. Like when people say, "Well, can you read?" It's it's sort of different. It's not like reading on a horn where you read one note at a time. And there's you know there's so many ways to do something on a guitar. So many different ways to finger something on different strings you have to choose. And sometimes sight reading. When someone says, "Can you sight read?" You say yes, but there's always that trepidation of, "Well, sight read what?" The Rodrigo guitar concerto or a little <laughs> R&B song, you know. So it's it's always that that was always a fear for me. Like when are they going to find out I don't read as good as I thought I did, you know? But I got you know you get comfortable with the cast. You see the same people. Remember day in and day out, I would see the same fifty musicians. You know, I'd see the Brecker Brothers. I'd see Steve Gadd. I'd see Rick Murata. I'd see Mike Maneri. You know, I'd see uh, Chuck Greeny, and then Will Lee came out on the scene. And you see these guys, Anthony Jackson. We you know we'd see the same fifty guys on every session. At one time I was doing probably 15 recording sessions a week. It could be Aretha Franklin in the morning and, uh, you know, Les McCann in the evening. And the next day it's, you know, Roberta Flack and then a jingle, you know, play a commercial date. We go in and it's, it's a track for whatever, Coca-Cola, you know, there's an arranger and, you know, whatever. It was so many different styles of music and you'd see the same people. After a while it became, you know, it became like a family of musicians that were doing a lot of this work in, in New York City. So, uh, I was fairly confident, but there were certain sessions where I sweated through a couple of guitar parts. I was like, wow, I couldn't, I couldn't immediately read it. I had to shed it for a minute, you know, and figure it out. I love this. I mean, we're, I mean, this is, this is, because uh, when I talked to, I've done a couple of interviews with Rainey. I was just wondering about your predecessors. Like, were they? Because Rainey said a lot of times, like, like cats like Everett Barksdale and and uh, yeah. and other, you know, the guys that preceded him. They'd be living out on Long Island, uh, outside the city, and if there was bad weather, uh, Rainy might get a call if if one of those cats couldn't come in uh, and do right, the, sure, sure do the gigs. And I'm just wondering, was it? Uh, I mean, clearly the guy's still smoking today, but like, was it Bucky Pizzarelli, Barry Galbraith? Who were the cats that kind of were the 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 guys before you and 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 in the studio scene before you became totally entrenched and first call guy? Yeah, well, that was uh, those guys you mentioned are some of them, and then of course Eric Gale was the guy. I mean, I think, a lot of my, I think a lot of my work came in because Eric either couldn't do it or there was a time where he went away. He was a terrific player and a very unique player. And I saw, and I did, which is so funny. I was so naive because I was so young when I got called. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know who Eric Gale was. So I remember playing on some R and B dates, and, and Bernard Purdy would be playing drums, and Chuck Rainey, and it'd be either Richard T. or I can't think of some, and Paul Griffin. You know, I'd play on some of those dates uh, with those guys, and and they would make a joke. Oh, oh, Eric, watch out! This guy, Dave Spinoza, and I, I didn't even know who Eric was. I felt like an idiot because I didn't even know who he was when I was getting called when he couldn't make it, but. You know, and I think part of the reason I got called, I was getting called to, I mean, I was, I don't consider myself a virtuoso guitar player. It's just that I was doing a lot of different styles and the styles were changing. You know, a lot of the jazz guys back then, the hardcore jazz guys were the rhythm section guys in New York City. And, and they were playing the big, you know, L5 kind of boxes and stuff. I came in with a Telecaster. I could play, you know, I liked country jazz and stuff too. So I was playing country music. I was playing jazz. I was playing rock and I could read. So I think that kind of put me, in a in a place where I could get more more different types of calls, you know, because a lot of the guys that just played nobody was playing light gauge strings yet or any of that stuff, you know. I was bending the strings and playing blues and all that kind of stuff, and a lot of the guys weren't. So I think I sort of I filled a little a, a position that you know hadn't been really filled, and that's why I think I got a lot of work. Not that I'm, I'm not saying I'm a bad guitarist, but there's guys who just you know specialize in certain things and they're virtuosos at it. I was never that guy. I was always somewhat of a chameleon. And uh, and I think they were looking for that. Oh, so. I mean, but I was, uh, yeah, no, you're you're nailing it. Um, 
the um, uh, you know, Eric Gale, when I talked to Phil Upchurch, I think Phil said the only other cat who played lead electric guitar and lead electric bass on albums was, was Eric Gale. Yeah, he's terrific. He was a very creative guy, Eric. I mean, really. I mean, I, I didn't even know this, too. He went down to New Orleans to record with Alan Toussaint, too. I never knew that either. Uh, yeah. You know, heavy, heavy, heavy cat. Yeah, I'm going to put a, a piece of music in here, and, uh, you know, let's see where it goes, and then we'll come back and break it down. Sure, man. on the Jake Feinberg Show brought to you by Abbott Taylor Jewelers, the Circle Tree Ranch, and Craig Pretzinger of Allstate Insurance, and we thank them for their support. All right, Spinoza, what do you got for us? What? What do you mean? Uh, well, you have any idea? I mean, that, I know we didn't stretch out in that song, but I just wanted to, I'm curious if you were able to detect uh, maybe possibly the session. I know you've been on millions, thousands. I, have no, I don't remember that whatsoever, to tell you the truth. Okay, that was... Uh, Ga Gang Gang Goong, Rusty Bryant, nineteen seventy three, and that that that's off an album uh, called. Um, and I just had it up here. Let me see here. Um, and where did you get them? Are you sure I played in that? Because sometimes I notice even you go online now, you see these these credits that sometimes are not accurate. So I don't I don't even recognize. That uh, no, it was called. It was it was. Uh, and and I I'll, I'm going to bring it up in a minute. But it was just uh, yeah. It was definitely on Prestige, hmm. uh, uh, an album. You're you're credited as as uh, as as playing guitar on that as well. But you know, when those could you just in general when you like Mainari, I talked to Mainari last week, and he was he said that uh, that you know because he was producing and arranging a lot, he had access to the studios so he'd call up cats like yourself and say hey you want to come yeah. jam, jam tonight and you know um but i'm just wondering if you could talk about like outside of the after a long day in the studios uh a bit you know a, like a like a swing and jazz group that you had where you would play and and uh the cats you would you would you would play with well the the the, the fun we used to have back in the day was a club called mckell's i don't know if you heard about that no. uh maybe oh that's is that where stuff played 
Yeah, stuff yeah. used to play there, and yeah, yeah. So we used to, I used to go there and play there with Tro- John Trope and and Will Lee, and uh, when Steve Jordan was just coming up, I met, I met Steve Jordan when he was probably he was like my age. He was you know when I started, he was the next young guy I think after after me. He was like seventeen years old or something. I met him. We used to play there. I'd go there in Seventh Avenue South. We'd go down there. That was a great hang at the, the Brecker Brothers Club down the seventh day, and that was a real fun place to play. But once I was really that got really busy, to tell you the truth, I was not one of those guys that that had to like play every night and play music all the time. I mean, on the weekends, I was really into like uh, I was I'm a sort of a skier, and I used to I used to race dirt bikes in the woods on the weekends and stuff. I was not a guy that when I wasn't working was hanging out in jazz clubs or something like that. I just you know I was working enough, and I really didn't I really didn't do that. That wasn't my my scene. I'm looking here. It's uh, Rusty Bryant. Until it's time for you to go, 1974. Uh, Bernard Purdy, Wilbur Bascombe, Horace Ott. It was a Horace Ott session. Oh, Horace, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. David. I, it, the, truthfully, I it was it's Spinoza and McCracken. So whoever was playing that uh, that little, I I want to believe I I want to believe it was been, you. <laughs> it could have been Huey playing it. Actually, that's what you're saying because I did a lot of sessions with you. I did a lot of sessions with Horace. Horace Ott was called me for a lot of dates, you know, back in the day. He was like one of the guys I worked for religiously. So I probably am on it. I just didn't re- I didn't uh, recall that particular song. It was just like... What, well, what made Horace Ott a great arranger? I mean, it seemed like he came out of this this idea of like post... It was, it was post-bop. It was Ray Charles. It was rock. I mean... Well, he just had a real good... He had a... You know, I, I considered him like a really good R&B arranger. He had a really... He was a very musical guy, and he, uh, you know, he had a re- he wrote for horns really well. I don't know where he learned to do it. He probably went to college or something, uh, music school. I don't know, but he was, uh, re- he just was very tasty with writing for horns and strings. You know, good leader, really good, ba- good band leader for R and B stuff mostly. I did with him, so yeah, Unbe- unbelievable. Can you, you know, I, my show is predicated on the four L's, and uh, one of them is is leadership, and I'm curious about. Um, your concept of leadership, and also uh, what are some of the, on the bandstand, what are some of the most valuable nuanced qualities of leadership that can be displayed? On the bandstand? Yeah. Well, one thing, I, I, I certainly, I like leaders that don't get rattled. You know, a lot of times you, you see le- leaders that uh, think that leading is you have to lead with an iron fist and make everybody uptight and all that stuff. I, I think it works uh, against musicians to do that. Even, even you know, there's conductors that believe, even in the classical world, there's, there's conductors that think you have to really stay on the orchestra to keep them playing. And they run an orchestra like it's uh, like it's an army. I, I don't like, I actually like leaders that, uh, you know, that are, that are, have this have their shit together, you know. That are not they're not fearful themselves, so they don't make the band fearful. Because I think people play better when they're not afraid. Can you give an uh, example? Well, that is an example. No, I mean like of a, of a leader you worked under who didn't get rattled. Who didn't get rattled? Oh, like Arif Martin, you know, producer. Uh, is he still like around that. or is he gone now? No, Arif passed away. Uh, but uh, you remember you, know, he was a, you remember a time when he potentially could have, or someone else could have gotten rattled, and he just stayed with it. Uh, well, I watched Quin- I worked with Quincy Jones when when Quincy was in town. He's one who, to me, just you know, he kept the session. He just he may had that that ability to make you want to play for him. You know, not only was he a good musician and a great producer and arranger, but he had that personality that he made you want to perform for him. Mm. And that's a great quality, you know, in a leader. Some leaders, I think, that, like I said, that lead with an iron fist. You know, it's a difference between uh, you know demanding uh, your attention and commanding it. You know. Um, as a leader, so 
what in terms of I, I guess the other thing is uh is nonverbal communication uh you know to me we live in a very like you said lawyers <laughs> lawyers control everything now and a lot of things are yeah. we, we we lean on words and we parse words but on the bandstand there's not a lot of talking i just i was i would love you to talk about a time uh when you uh you know when you experienced some some leader maybe you you were the one that was leading but but you did it in a nonverbal fashion hmm um yeah, I don't, you know, I haven't had a real lot of bandstand stuff because for the, you know, last 40 years, once I stopped having my bands as a, as a kid, I was always in the studio. So most of my leadership stuff would, would be how people led recording sessions because that's really most of my experience with that. Horace Ott was good at keeping a session going. Uh, like like I mentioned, um, Arif Martin, Quincy, people like that. Those are the leaders I've worked for. I, I don't have a lot of bandstand um you know stuff because i didn't do a lot of playing live i wasn't on the road very much you right know? this is fascinating stuff you can remember most of my experience of playing is for microphone and a producer microphones producers and other musicians in a resto in a recording studio in a very controlled environment i don't have a lot of a lot of bandstand stories because i didn't do a lot of bandstand playing but what david spinoza did do was a lot of studio recording let's listen to this tune and yeah. see if you can peg this one okay yeah. Yeah. sure Spinoza, what do you got for us? Well, yeah, that that I that I recognize. That's me. Uh, that, okay, thank you. Know what it is? I, this blew my mind because it says Spinoza played guitar solo on Doctor John's hit "Right Place, Wrong Time." I I interviewed Leo Nocentelli. I don't know if he told me that. 
I just think I I I'm I just who did you interview? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Leo Leo No Centelli was was the guitar player in the Meters. Uh, yes. Well, I only played the solo. It's a it's a there's there's a whole story behind. Please tell the that. story. Please tell the story. Yeah, the story. It's a very actually funny story. But uh, I only played that guitar solo. All the rhythm stuff you heard in the opening and throughout the rest. Of, the whole the whole record is the Meters, I believe. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yes. And, yes. And what happened was I was at Atlantic Records. Uh, one day, and I used to do a lot of sessions with with Dr. John, you know, back then. Which I didn't even know he was Dr. John. That's so funny. I used to, you know, I called him Max. His real name is Mac Mac Revenant, Revenant. Of course. So I used to work. Which, you know, so we, I used to, which, yeah, al- so back, which albums did you were you worth him on? Oh, these were different records, not his records, but just as a studio guy. Because we we used to work at Atlantic a lot. It's the same with like Donny Hathaway. Like he would he was one of the people that a reef or or I'm trying to remember the other producer Jerry. Um, Wexler. Uh, yeah, uh, not you. Well, Jerry and also, you know, Ahmed would do stuff, and there was another guy, I can't think of it. Oh, um, he produced Roberta Flack's. Uh, yeah, uh, it'll come. It'll come. Whatever, it doesn't yeah. matter. But the, the point is, so I used to do a lot of sessions where Dr. John was just the piano player on the session, and, you know, or Donnie Hathaway would be the piano player, you know. And so I would see them at the time. So I was coming out of Atlantic. I had just done some session. I forgot what it was, and I was at the, uh, I was waiting for the elevator to come. And Dr. John and Arif Martin come out of the, this mix room. They were mixing that record, is what happened. And, and they saw me standing in the hall, and apparently they forgot to put a solo on there. So they were getting ready to mix the song, and then when they got to that section, they realized that there wasn't a solo. And if I'm not mistaken, it was going to be a sax solo, not a guitar solo. But they came out because Dr. John was only in, in town for a while, and they, for, and they had to f- finish mixing the record. So I was standing at the elevator. I said, oh, Spinoza, you got a minute. Could you come in and throw a solo on this song? And I just said, well, actually, I'm on my, I was on my way to a, to a jingle date. At this point, I was mostly doing commercials, and even the recording scene was changing a little bit. And I was on my way to, I had like 20 minutes to get someplace, which is, those are the days where you could jump in a cab in New York and actually get someplace. Exactly, right. Minutes. I had like 20 minutes, and I said, listen, I got 20 minutes. I said, oh, come on in, you'll hear it, you'll hear it, let's go. So I go into this little mix room, it wasn't even the big recording studio. And there was a little Fender amp in there, so I pl- they said, just plug in there, they threw a mic on it. I plugged in. They 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 keyed it up right to where the solo was because I did. So I never heard the whole song. They keyed it up. They said you'll hear it. It's in the key E flat. Give me like a blues kind of solo. So I took the guitar out of the case. I you know I had it in a soft gig bag. I took it out and I remembered that my uh, my G string was like out of tune because the the tuning pegs had gotten moved while it was in the case. I wasn't really even in t- tuned up yet. So I said, well, let me hear it and I'll play along. And I'll see you know. And then I'll I'll do a take. But I got then I got to go. They said fine, fine, fine. So I put the headphones on. And I played that solo while, and then I real, and one of the notes that to me this day is hard for me to listen to. I, I felt like I overbent it to some note I wasn't trying to bend it to because I thought the string was out of tune. I was messing around, so then I tuned up. I said, "All right, let me try one." And they said, "No, that's it. It's magic. You got to that. You're done." Right. Said, no. It's always it's always the the first take is always the best, right? I mean, it, no, it, I don't know. Yeah. I don't have that belief. I don't share that belief. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. But. They they just you know they, they you know sometimes the first take is whatever but, but I guess it worked in this instance you know what I mean Some, you know, sometimes it takes a hundred takes to get something yeah no, but every was, now and yeah. then there was there was this there was this one part where it just sort of sounds like very Hendrix esque you know it just kind of goes off well it was it, it yeah it, it, and it was but it wasn't because I was trying to do that it was one of those weird like happy accidents or something <laughs> but they heard it I didn't hear it I was sort of embarrassed by it. so well let me try another one they said no 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 that that's it you know you're done. So I remember leaving the studio sort of deje- you know, dejected because I thought, well, I think I could have played something better than that. But cut to like, this is such a New York story, cut to like two months later, three months later, I'm in the back of a yellow cab 
go into a, some other session, and I got three guitars hanging off me because I used to bring three axes to the session. So, and that song comes on the radio, but I don't recognize it because I've never heard it. I've only played the guitar solo, oh, and I funny. never heard that the song. That is so funny. So I'm in the cab, I'm in the cab, and this cab driver looks at me, and it gets to the solo section. He says, oh, you'll appreciate this. You're a guitar player. I see you're a guitar player. This is my new favorite guitar solo. And he turns it up. No. And then I recognize oh. it, that it's me, and I go, oh, my God. You know, not to be, I wasn't trying to be an egomaniac, but it's just like knee-jerk reaction. I just went, oh, that's me. He goes, yeah, right, buddy, and he turns it off. <laughs> he turned it down because he thought I was full of shit. Oh my God! That, see, this is why I do my show, man. I mean, have you, so have you... I went and then, so I then, so I went to Tower Records, or not Tower Records. I went to Colony Shop, that, that place where we used to go years ago, and I bought the record so I could hear it because I had never really heard it. And I almost heard it in the back of the cab, but the guy thought I was lying. He just, yeah, right, buddy, turned it down. Yeah, that's you, sure. David Spinoza. I mean, this is, you know, I want to I want to read you something uh, here from a. Uh, I just want you to read because you are uh, you, you've produced a lot you've produced a lot of records and like you know a lot of cats that are just musicians uh, a lot of times they want to do like you said let me do the take again or let me do it over yeah. again and cats will be like no you we heard it it's good it's done yeah but yeah. this has more to do with with miking and I wanted to talk to you about it yeah. because I really hear this very strongly with um, I've been kind of obsessed with the idea of you know this pocket of time before i was born the early 70s and it's mm -hmm. not even it's not analog to digital it's how you mic what i've learned is it's how you mic the the, the stuff and, and i just want to read you this quote from uh, studio drummer david kemper he mm -hmm. said uh glenn johns always had a, got a great sound it was always real open not a lot of yeah. mics used on the drums he would do it with three microphones bass drum mic and a right mm -hmm. and left stereo overhead put real old style but he knew where to put the mics and so what the, older, what the older guys would do, they would set up a room full of musicians and they'd see who needed more bass or more treble. And then uh, they, did it to, to, they did it to sound great in the room. And then they would uh, mic the room instead of miking individuals. That's the way they heard it. Right. And I wanted you to talk about you, that philosophy and is that the reason why, like, it, it, that old school methodology of miking made everything so bright it the music breathed i mean can mm -hmm. we can we chalk it up to that and how do you mic the the studio well I, I think it's first of all i think it's different in different situations and depending on who the players are i think miking i think whoever said that is it's true about miking but like say for instance if you're talking about a, a drummer let's just take miking the drums for instance if you have a drummer that balances himself really well you know like like bernard purdy for instance does that unbelievably steve gadd does it Unbelievably, Rick Murata does it really great. There's some drummers that you know, just the way they, the way they balance between their bass drum, snare drum, you know, just the the the, the volumes of each drum. If they do it well, you can do use less mics because they're giving it to you the way you want to hear it anyway. You know what I mean? Exactly. But if it's some, you know, so really, you, you know, with, with like everything, you, nothing depends on on any one thing 100. percent So yes, there's miking techniques, but then my thing is, yeah, but miking who? What drum are you? Who are you miking? Are you miking Bernard Purdy? Or are you miking, you know, your cousin who, who his snare drum is way louder than his bass drum? And, you know, then you better put individual, then you better put six mics on because you're going to have to rebalance it later, you know, to get it to be balanced. But if, if the musician is really good within himself and he can balance himself perfectly, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have everything separate. 
So that so it really depends on uh, yes, there is miking techniques, but it also depends on well, who are you recording? Right. No. Well, I mean, he was he was and and Kemper was talking specifically about Keith Moon's drum set because. With, yeah. with the Who, there was a lot of thrashing and very loud, so you, sometimes yeah, the drums yeah. could get lost in that, as opposed to... Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, because it's the whole thing. Yeah, who are you recording? What else is happening around it? You know, I don't, I don't have any one miking technique that I would say, this is the way you mic the drums, or this is the snare drum sound you get. It's really, yeah, is it, is it a power band? Like you said, is it, is it a trio like that? Or is it, you know, a big band? You know, I mean, it also depends on what type of music you're doing. And, and uh, you know, I don't have any particular... Well, you, I always mic the drums like this. You know, I don't... I wouldn't say you always do anything. You listen to the to the music first and say, well, what is it going to take to capture this, you know? This is this is from... So this, this adds on to this, and I know you weren't prolific bandstand player, but uh, I believe that this is also incredibly important as it relates to feel... From from this is from my interview with Mayneri. He said there weren't mic. This is he was talking about in general uh, in a live session. He said there weren't microphones on every drum. I don't think there were any microphones on the drums at all. There was a microphone on the piano, and if there were two horn players, they would share one microphone. There was no. That's mi- right. Yeah. There was no yeah. microphone. But this is the important part. There was no microphone on the bass, and mm-hmm. the bass had no amplifier. It was a whole different concept of what was acoustic. The bass yeah. player. You'd kind of hear the notes, but you kind of, you'd kind of just feel. Okay, no, you'd feel them. You wouldn't feel hear them. them. Yeah, that's okay. right. Can you yeah. talk well, about now, that yeah, feel? Yeah. That I'm, how I want you to talk about in your personal case, how you developed that feel. How I developed? I don't know. Just, well, you're asking miking and then feel. I'm not no, sure. Because because what he's getting in, in my interpretation of it is now yeah. is that is that okay? You couldn't hear, so you had to feel. Okay, it was a very different. Set. I mean, it's about feeling the music. You have to, you have mm-hmm. to, you have to, you have to feel it. It has to feel good. In my generation, younger generations, we've had digital beats crushed into our ears for two or three decades now. People don't feel. It goes back to the pacification part of it. They don't feel as much. And so, the idea of being up in some sort of situation on the bandstand or in the studio where you didn't have the ability to, because. You know, there was no amplifier on the bass, and you just had to feel. Right, the, right. You just had to feel the notes. I just want you to talk about that. You can riff on that. Yeah, well, I mean, you, yes, you could feel it. I mean, you could, you could hear it. You know, but sometimes you couldn't hear it on a record because, you, yeah, it just didn't it didn't come through. But that became part of the sound of the record. Like, you know, big bands they didn't always have a mic on every saxophone. Like even now, when you hear big band records, they sound a little sterile compared to when you hear an old Count Basie record because the band the band balanced themselves. Right and 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 they'd have a few mics and you and you would capture what you would capture like I said the bass didn't have its own didn't necessarily have its own mic so you'd hear the bass in the background and you would you you would hear it but you wouldn't hear it as audible as like today when you hear people you hear a big band they'll mic every instrument and they'll you know it's almost too crystal clear exactly it's almost too crystal clear and in that crystal clearness it's almost like you get a sterile sound Uh, not everything is meant to be crystal clear you know that's part of just like in a good painting like a good painter sometimes he doesn't have the background in it as as clear as the the thing in the front because that's the sound you want contrast so a lot of with digital when digital came in a lot of contrast got lost and people are like oh look you can hear everything so crystal clear well that's a good thing and a bad thing you know i mean you're nailing so i mean in your how do you try to get as an as as authentic a sound if you when you are producing uh, or someone comes to you and they want... I mean, the Keltner right now has spent a lot of this year 
uh, producing. Uh, Danny Korshmar, he's a big producer. I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I want to know from you how you create that authentic sound with the new, all the new gadgets and technology without it sounding so that you can, so it can burn. That's what I mean by burning, where you could feel it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, I don't know, because you know, after all, that that gets to be like a concept. How do you get that? And it's different to everybody. But for me, I don't, I don't get into everything having to be close mic'd so that you have a hundred. You know, you have this hundred percent uh, control over every single instrument. Yeah, you want to have control, but but it's not. You know, it's not necessary if it sounds good in the room and it, and you've got enough mics up and it sounds good. You hit record and you and you get what you get. You don't. You know, you can play with it. You know, the thing about today's technology is you can edit it till you're blue in the face, you know what I mean? With all the stuff that you can do, you can keep working on stuff and, un, until it's never done. So I, you know, I, I don't get that crazy about it. If it, just, if it feels good, record it. <laughs> and, and, you know, own, own it and say, this is what it is. Put it out that way. Don't, don't be afraid of it, you know? Did you, um, uh, can you talk about, uh, I, I, I'm serious, I don't know why, I, I've, I've had this record several, I only collect vinyl, but I, I've had this record several times and I don't have it in my collection right now, but it's one of the most emotional albums. And I'm, I just would love you to talk to me about your experience uh, playing um, on uh, on the Extensions of a Man album with Donny Hathaway. I mean, cause well, that's funny you mention that because that's what that's one of my favorites of him too, and he was one of my. I, was, favorites. I cry when I listen to that, and I and I'm, me too. I, when I see me Spinoza, too. I'm like, there's Spinoza again, again, yep. and, and and it's like the most emotional thing. I've ever heard, and I'm like, please break down that what your memories are, and ultimately what Donnie meant to to just music and, and music in general. Well, well, to me, first of all, it's funny you're mentioning that because he's one of my favorite artists of all time. All time, yeah. And um, I would work with him on a lot of sessions. You know, I worked with him when he was just playing piano on other people's sessions with, uh, like I said, when we did Atlantic stuff with Reef Martin. He would get called in to play. You know, it'd be him or Richard T or Dr. John or whatever. And I did a lot of work with him, and he had asked me to play on that record of him. And I really didn't know his... I didn't know his singing that well. I knew him mainly as a piano player, and I didn't know his songwriting that well. So when he asked me to work on that record, I was thrilled. And it's one of my favorite records, and he's one of my favorite you know, singer-songwriters. It was, broke my heart when he passed away. Uh, he was someone I really admired. And I think that the record... Yeah, his version of... Of song for you, for instance, is probably one of my. It's hard for me to even listen to it. It's so emotional. I, I mean, it is the most. Um, I, I don't know the the uh, the. I heard. I love the Lord. Someday we'll all be free and to fly yes. easy. I, th- yes. th- that that medley is just. Well, yep. it, it, I'm, you know, it, it it makes it. Uh, did you did you ever you know a, a cat that I've been talking to recently uh, is uh, is Felix Cavallari. Did you work on any Rascal sessions? Not rascals, but I've worked with Felix on other things. We actually sort of knew each other from back back in the day a little bit. I, he lived in Pelham, New York. I lived in Maranek, and I used to go up there. I saw them rehearse in their garage band situation when I was really young, you know. Oh, my gosh. that's Yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 the uh, we've been cooking here set one. Before, I would love to do set two with you at some point. But uh, um, before we wrap up, I just wanted you to talk about do you tape this, by the way? Are you able to send me a copy? Oh, or? dude, we're we're rolling, man. Of course, oh, cool. yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, you're gonna have to send me a picture of you back from the, uh, the that that right place, wrong time era, though. I want to see oh, okay. a picture of you <laughs> from '73. But the uh, can you talk about your concept of love and how you bring love to the world? 
my concept of love, man. That's a no, <laughs> that's a big it's question. A, it's a deep show. <laughs> it's a deep show, man. Concept of love. Yeah. Well, first of all, I don't think there's a lack of it. Or, or not, I shouldn't say lack of it. What I mean is, I, no, that, that's not say correct. What I, mean is I don't think there's a sure. I don't think that there's an, a finite amount of it. So you can never, you can never give too much of it. Sure. And uh, you know, so I think uh, that's my concept of love, and I, I sort of think of it as a capital L, not a, not in the romantic love situation, but in terms of love, I just think that, uh, you know, it's just there's there's you know there's there's never loving too much. Is there a time in in your life that you can talk about? Uh where you were really fighting fighting something it could be on the, could have been musically could have been anything but you were fighting some adversity uh and how you overcame it and how it made you stronger um well i think having just general having come you know coming from a broken home uh, probably was weird for me as a kid you know coming from father left young and then you know lived with my mother for a while by myself and then i stepped out of stepped in and really stepped up to the plate but it was you know it was weird trying to adjust to all of that i think i carried that with me for a while sort of like you know angry young man kind of syndrome and uh somewhere down the line just all the, the people i've met and the opportunities i've had in the music business just uh softened me on life in general you know did you ever connect with your biological father uh, once or twice before he passed away, which he did about four or five years ago. But, you know, there was never, we didn't really know each other very well, you know, so. Also, uh, what is, uh, aside from this, uh, this gig in Jersey, I mean, what, in 2017, is there anything that you are thinking about doing that you can share with us as far as like, you know, a small date or do you have any, any gigs that, uh, anything going on in your head that you want to do in the new year? I've been I've been sort of not that ambitious. I've been back, honestly, just practicing classical guitar to learn learn some pieces. I was always uh, sort of sort of could play, but never really got them memorized. I've been just doing stuff like that for myself, you know, just that kind of thing. So, and it's been fine. I'm, you know, I may I may do a, a record at home. I'm, you know, I have a studio on my house, but I'm not. I haven't been severely ambitious. I've been I mean, severely ambitious. It's just been. Uh, you know, living life a day at a time. I'm very happy with what I'm doing, where I'm living, and all that. So it's it's been, it's fine. I'm not, you know, I never was the the guy that had to be working, uh, you know, twenty four seven. I was never that guy. No, I. You clearly, I mean, you were not like the wrecking crew that would uh, go to Dante's uh, and play for free, like Ernie Watts and Emil Richards, because they just yeah. wanted to play jazz or whatever. You know, I, I respect it, uh, and uh, everybody has is on their own. It just that's the unique quality of of everybody is unique as a musician, and that uniqueness should be embraced as opposed to the conformity that I feel like we are. This is a very conformist time that we are living through in all phases of our society, and I just want uh, part of the reason I I do my show is so that I can take a lot of these stories and blow them out on new media so that younger cats can 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 dwell on the idea of of how real authentic music is made again i mean yeah. the the right place wrong time story i never would have i mean would it have been a much like you know sexier story if you were in the studio with the, the meters and you know they called you in i mean it, it worked out the way yeah. it did but you know there's a magic it's just a magic you know there's only two letters that separate magic and music and uh cats like spinoza have been doing it for a long time so uh, i really i can't thank you enough for being part of the program well, thank you, thank you for asking me. It's uh, it's been a it's been a journey. It's been it's been great. Can you uh, later uh, later on? Can you can you connect me with Murata? I certainly could. Yes. Okay, great. I want I, I want to make sure to get to everybody. Life is uh, life is fleeting, but we'll do set two. Maybe uh, come New Year, we got more to more to cover. All right, sounds great. All right, brother. Have a great day.
Right. Thank you. You too. Later on. Just talked to uh, David Spinoza, decorated studio musician. Uh, we ran through a few songs there, but that didn't even do justice to it, really. I mean, uh, he's just he's been doing it forever uh, and still comfortable in his own skin, which we all are trying to get to. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be back tomorrow with Elliot Glicksman, who is uh, spearheading the Tucson Third Annual Tucson Jazz Festival. Uh, as well as um, Lynn Davis and, and uh, Steve from the Jewish Community Center, and they will be previewing the film festival at the Jewish Community Center coming up in January. Until then, we're going to rejoin the Jim Parisi show in progress. Does the president-elect believe that Russia was trying to muddy up and get involved in the election in 2016? Number one, 